This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to this series three, episode 10 of Out With Susie Ruffle. Thank you so much for listening. Um, You might be someone that's been listening since the start. Hello, you might be someone that's come to this episode because you're a massive fan of Hannah Gadsby. Um, Either way, you're totally welcome. Uh, Thanks for coming along. I'm really excited to share this episode today. Thank you so much to all of you that got in touch last week after Broner's episode. It seemed that it really hit a chord with loads of people. So... um, yeah, Broner and I were both really blown away by it. We were texting lots of the day saying how lovely it was that so many people had shared it and talked about it. And I got some really gorgeous emails as well. Um, so thank you so much. If you do want to get in touch with me, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I said hello then, like you can put intonation in an email. Uh, but if you do email me, I hope that you you think that as you type it. Hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Uh, There's been lots of messages and emails and uh, tweets and Instagrams and uh, people commenting on the um, on the podcast apps. And I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Rating and reviewing the podcast always helps. I know that you hear that on all of your podcasts, but it does. So um, I have to I have to mention it as well. As always, we start our episodes with uh, listener uh, emails. I always want to say listener letters. I've, I've not got a post bag. Uh, listener letters. So uh, let's share a couple of those before we get into our interview. Hello, Susie. I hope you've been enjoying the sunshine and pub gardens and barbecues and all the delights as the relaxing of rules here in the UK begins. I also apologise for the length of this. It's taken me a few weeks to get up the confidence to finally message my gratitude in response to both your amazing podcasts, especially your episode with the truly wonderful Jessica Foster Q. That is a particularly brilliant episode. If you haven't listened to it, I strongly advise you do. Um, I started listening to Like-Minded Friends, that's the podcast I do with Tom, because I adore both you and Tom and during lockdown one just needed some friendly voices. I found out as a result and began to follow and listen to other people and podcasts after discovering them through you, building a bigger picture of sexuality as I went and telling myself and others I'm just being an ally. I spent the past few months, or let's face it years, feeling increasingly like something wasn't quite right. I've never been able to put my finger on it. More recently, I could pass it off to myself as the tiredness of small children or being touched out due to small children. This is a real thing and I don't want to undermine it. And I assumed I'd get some sort of sex drive back eventually. And I have. And this has become clear. Everything started to click. The more I heard 
the more I discovered I wasn't just listening as an ally, I was listening for myself. For answers I hadn't realised I was so desperately in need of. The intense female friendships, the feelings I was experiencing were totally normal and then hearing Jess's honest and sincere account of her experience led me to stand in my kitchen alone and sob. The pieces of my carefully constructed identity in life came crashing down and it was like someone had looked inside my mind and put to words exactly how I felt. I've been sitting ever since the episode aired with the realisation that as well as being bi, I very much have internalised homophobia. I have children, I'm married to a man. It's going to be a very slow and steady process of unpicking myself and putting myself and my life back together again with the least amount of heartbreak. But I now know who I am and I know that I can do it. I mentioned to two very dear friends in our first socially distanced meetup how I felt and instantly they were supportive, reassuring and quickly made me see that they will love me and support me no matter what. All of this, my realisation and my confidence to approach my friends with some more much needed hand-holding is because of you. I can't put into words how important your podcast is to me and countless others across the globe. Because of you, I can see that we're not alone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. For obvious reasons, I'm going to keep that uh, email um, anonymous. That's the word I'm looking for, anonymous. Um, Thank you so much for saying that. Uh, It's really lovely that the podcast has meant that much to you. And um, I think Jess's episode is is, is really special. And I think it's, as, as I've said before, I'm the person that gets to interview people, but it honestly is so many people sharing their stories with me that it is the reason that this podcast is is getting those sorts of responses. So thank you so much for taking the time to email me and um, good luck with whatever comes next for you. Um, It's really lovely when people say that the podcast has meant a lot to them. Obviously, it means an enormous amount to me. There's nothing that I've ever done in my professional life that feels more important than those emails that I receive. And um, I was talking to my girlfriend today. We were on our way back from a socially distance barbecue with some friends. And I knew that I had to do this uh, intro to this episode. And uh, my girlfriend said to me, that podcast has really saved you over the last year and I think it really has because it was so strange for me with comedy just disappearing off the face of the earth and I love doing stand-up it's my favorite thing in the world to do and it's it's the only thing I've ever been good at so I get such a kick out of doing it and having something to do feeling like I'm talking to people and sharing these stories has just been such a joy for me over the last 12 months when my job just stopped existing so it's so lovely when people say how much they appreciate the podcast but I I guess I really appreciate all of you listening to it as well god for people that have just come to this episode for Hannah Gadsby it feels like it's very heavy I promise it's not guys I, I feel it sound like I'm having quite an emotional time but I've actually just had a lovely day okay let's share another email hi Susie I've been thinking about sending you an email for quite some time the listener emails are my favorite part of the podcast for me there's lots I could share but nothing has felt quite as pertinent until now For context, I retrained as a primary school teacher a few years ago and have been doing my best to make my classrooms as embracing, inclusive and an open environment because as a queer brown woman who has experienced mental health issues, I know firsthand what a difference being accepted can make and how awful it can feel when you're somewhere where you feel othered. I've had lots of beautiful moments with children, but none have impacted me in the same way as a moment I had with a child this week. I teach seven to eight year olds and I read a story called King and King where two princes get married 
And although I've shared quite a few queer stories, and we've talked a fair bit about being gay and about different family structures, etc., some kids said, uh, when there was a kissing pic at the end of the story. To be fair, kids say, uh, at anyone kissing. But I didn't want to let this teaching moment pass me by. So I asked the kids to share why they thought it was, uh, and it was a good discussion to have. I explained that the response could be hurtful for someone, and we might not even realise, because there might be times when there are people in the room who haven't told us they're gay, and the kids seem to really get it. At the end of the day, a kid came up to me and said, I felt a bit sad when the other kid said, uh, because I'm gay. I told him that I felt a bit sad too, because I'm also gay. I've not explicitly come out to my class, because I'm not sure how supportive my school will be if any of the parents have an issue with it. Part of this is definitely a hangover of working with people who work during section 28. I explained to him why the kids might have said that and it didn't mean that being gay was bad and that sometimes we have to learn to look after ourselves when people upset us like that. I asked him if he was able to chat to any of his friends and when did he realise? He said he realised at the weekend and told a friend in our class the day after. I told him he could chat to me whenever he wanted and left it fairly casual as I wanted him to have the experience of an adult simply accepting it without causing a huge fuss in either a positive or a negative way. Even though I kept my response fairly casual, I'll obviously follow it up and keep checking in with him to see if he needs support in anything, including telling others if he wants to. I've since found out that I was the first adult he's told and I'm blown away that he trusted me enough to tell me, oh my heart. I have no idea how his life will go, but I hope that seeing himself reflected in our classroom has helped him and will continue to help him. I can only hope that he'll be able to hold on to the acceptance I've given him at those points when he might face negativity. It makes my heart hurt to think of those who've had negative early experiences of sharing our sexuality, but I'm also happy to be a small positive part in this young person's journey. For me, teaching children to be accepting, kind and reflective is far more important than covering the curriculum and creating an environment where kids can feel seen and accepted is the ultimate joy. I felt so emotional after this kid came out to me. It feels so important, powerful and healing to see this small human be able to understand himself a little better and feel safe enough to share it. I'm not sure when I discovered your podcast, but I binge listened and have shared it with so many straight and queer friends alike because the power of these stories is so immensely healing. So I wondered if any of your listeners knew of any similar podcasts where kids or young people have shared their stories, because I think it could be really important for this kids and other queer kids to understand themselves better. I'll sign off now with a thanks for creating the podcast and sharing the stories. They're really helping me feel more connected and seen too. And I'll keep that one anonymous too. Um, wow, I wish you were my teacher. I mean, I imagine we're a similar age, or you might even be younger than me, but... Um, what a wonderful experience for this boy. What a brilliant teacher you are. Um, if anyone does have any recommendations for podcasts, um, I don't know any offhand, um, but if anyone does have any recommendations for stories, sort of queer stories about younger people, um, let me know uh, and email me and I'll send them um, across to, uh, to this brilliant teacher. Thank you so much for getting in touch. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's get to today's episode. It's the marvellous Hannah Gadsby. I've known Hannah for quite a few years. I've always thought she was brilliant. Um, you can hear that I kind of, I'm kind of fangirling for a lot of the episode, which I think makes Hannah quite uncomfortable. Um, but I think this is a brilliant conversation. I think, I think this is a bit of a special one. I really hope you enjoy it. 
Listener, I am very excited for today's conversation. The guest today is actually someone that was on my list when I first started the podcast nearly a year ago, so I'm just so chuffed that she is um, that she's talking to me today. Hannah Gadsby is a phenomenal stand-up comedian. I first saw her at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2013 and have been a fan ever since. Her shows are always funny, thought-provoking and smart. She's been nominated for pretty much every comedy award going at festivals across the globe and in 2017 I saw her show Nanette in Edinburgh in a small packed lecture theatre that was, it was so little it was kind of like a studio and I was utterly blown away. It was an incredible piece of work and it already won Best Show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and soon won Best Show at the Fringe and it was so much more than a stand-up show and created a conversation about what stand-up could be. After that show, I felt like for me and for so many comedians I know, it inspired us to rethink how we put together a show, to rethink how we look at what we do. Nanette then toured the world and recorded a special for Netflix. It went on to win a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Variety Special and a Peabody Award. Her second Netflix special, Douglas, is just as brilliant and it is a true joy to welcome her to the podcast today. Hello, Hannah. Wow. Hello. I sound pretty cool. I was reminded of, I was not only, oh, still not, but like Edinburgh Fringe is not my time to shine as a human being because <laughs> it's horrible. Over, yeah, overwhelming. <laughs> I, and you meant it was 2013. So I think. Naked was, Needs? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Is that the show? Yeah, it was a good show, that one. It was a good show, mate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed doing that show. Um, but yeah, I think a few years later, um, well, I think it was, definitely was, um, 2015, 16, I was diagnosed with autism and then I realised why I became such a, just a really, diff- not a difficult person, but just, it was difficult for me to be in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I think half the comedians of that, that world just think, must think I'm an asshole because I was just, just getting through it because it was just so overstimulating and, and or, you know, I'd be all right in the first week and then I'd be just slowly crushed. And it wouldn't matter if I was having a good run or not. It was just crushing. Like the exhaustion of it? Yeah, because there's so many people, so much touching. Yeah, there is a lot of that. So much touching and so much, like, just so many emotions other people are having. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so willing to share them. So willing to share it. And it's like, not that I don't care, it's just a lot. Because everyone's putting their hearts and dreams and, you know, all this writing on the Edinburgh Fringe. And mm. everyone's devolving at the same time. And I'm just just there going, I don't like the sound of cobblestones. Um, <laughs> and so Edinburgh's not a good place for you because there is a lot of cobbles. There's just the environmental factor of Edinburgh gets to me before even the reality of putting on a show. I think the thing is with Edinburgh is that you're always walking uphill. Somehow I would walk uphill to my venue and then uphill home. I'm like, how is this? Yeah. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always effort. Do you feel the same about Melbourne Comedy Festival? No, because there's a, there's a hometown advantage of, of Melbourne. Mm. Then there's also the fact that it's only at night. It's not all day. Yeah. Every, like you can walk out. Like there are places where I live in Melbourne. You don't – it's not the festival. It's just right in the centre of the city, whereas Edinburgh, is, that's it. Like, and so you can't go anywhere without seeing other people's faces on a poster. That is true. Like you're surrounded by 
professional jealousy. <laughs> and as the festival goes on, people will consistently put stars up. And great quotes. And I never did and... that. And I never got, because I was just like, I couldn't, I, it was enough for me to just be able to get out of the door and get on stage. And without like, you know, if you're not supported by a big team there, it's just like, I'd have five star reviews and my posters would be empty. So I'm just like, I can't, I can't. Sorry, get glue. I don't want to get glue on my hand. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in more recent years, getting a ticket for your show, I mean, it's not like you had to try to sell it. I remember having to book more recent ones like weeks in advance before the festival. Yeah, it's sort of like, like I'm not a good measure of the kind of tenacity that, you know, like, I wouldn't say follow my model to people because <laughs> it's like you'd just be, the festival would be just full of these sort of partially mute blobs just miserying themselves around the festival. It would no longer be a festival. But having some really like hot whip smart takes on some paintings from the 1700s. Yeah. Inside the show's fine. But then you go out and go, who died? <laughs> Do you feel like that even now getting on stage? Because I watched Douglas again before doing this. I'd already watched it once ages ago. But I it's a good it show, again. isn't it? It's a really good show, mate. It's yeah. a really good show. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with that show. <laughs> what have you done with the dog crayon? He's just out in the lounge. We've got to crate yeah, it got... over. And then we use the yeah. crate that he came in uh, as a, I use it for a linen press. <laughs> Why not? I put, put some hinges on it and some caster wheels and just wheel it in. Where do I need to make a bed next? Wow. Yeah, lockdown. I love the sound of your life. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. But do you still feel like that now, like getting on stage? Do you feel stressed beforehand? Like are you still, I guess you were saying it's mainly in Edinburgh that you've got that sort no, of energy. No, like, the stress for me was never getting on stage. Uh, for some reason, what is a deficit in other parts of my life is a positive on stage. I don't get nerves. I don't. I don't catastrophize the possibilities. I just go into a, a nice comfy little zone and talk to my audience. Of course, if the audience is not, an, you know how sometimes an audience will have a team meeting and go, we don't want to like this person and it's nothing. <laughs> but yeah. my mind is like, I don't get desperate. I don't go, well, I'm going to win you back. I go, oh, let's just finish this early so no one remembers it. Because I, I see that mistake all the time with comics is they're like, I'm going to win this over and it just gets worse. Yeah, I've made that mistake for sure. I'm, I'm such a people pleaser. Yeah, and so that that is not what happens to me. I just sort of go, well, you win some, you lose some. Like, you know, I know all the tricks and I can sometimes get, you know, back, but I don't try too hard. I love that. So I don't get the, the nerves. I don't, sometimes I stand side of stage and just go, who are you? What do you want from me? Why? And um, <laughs> Well, I love that sort of what you say at the top of Douglas when you're like, why are you here? Um, like, my, it's like some massive theatre in it was shot in New York. Yeah, it was in uh, I think yeah. that was in LA. Sorry, LA. It was oh LA, right? Yeah, yeah. and so in a huge theatre, <laughs> just berating your audience for coming out. It's just genuine curiosity. Uh, uh, when I did, <laughs> yeah. when I did Nanette in 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 New York, I um, that was when I really Nanette became something I'd never known before. Before that, I was just doing Nanette in all the places I'd already done my other shows for ten years. So there was that. That Nanette was always, until I did it in New York, was always in a context that I'd spoken to my audiences before. So I felt like, but that was new altogether. I was just telling people who'd never even looked sideways at me that I was quitting comedy. So it became a, a, a different thing altogether. But 
But anyway, so I was getting like standing ovations at the end of this show, which is like on paper and in person, exciting. Mm-hmm. But that show's not really a victory lap kind of fucking show. Sorry. And so I go walk off stage at the end of the show and get this standing ovation and I just leave them. And after about a week of this, the producers had to come out and they're like, you got to come back out. I'm like, why? This is, they want more. And I'm like, I've said everything. And they're like, no, but they're clapping. I said, what do they want from me? I don't, like, I've done my job. They're clapping. They can do what they need to do. I don't, I don't need to be involved in this. And it was just like, it's really long. I, I, in hindsight, I can see that I was being torturous, but just the logic of it just wouldn't go into my head. And I'm just like, no, I don't. I, I did the show. They paid for the show. What they do afterwards is their business. <laughs> and, <laughs> You're like arguing what every other stand-up dream is, is to be like, oh, I guess I have to go back out. Pretty much. Like, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not telling you this to go, oh, sound cool. It's just like the logic of it didn't, until someone eventually convinced, you know, made it, they're like, they want to, it's for them. That was the thing. It's like, so I'm like, all right. I'll do it for them. So they want to show, you know, like it's this, because I always thought it was just like, you know, it's just performers being wankers going, oh, give me a bit more, give me a bit more. And it's just like, get off. <laughs> Most of the time we're just clapping because we're supposed to. Yeah, because we're like, oh, okay, I can get dinner now. <laughs> yeah, stop drinking this up. This is not your elixir. So did you then have to write a new bit to go on and close with? Mm-mm. No, they just want me to go back and just bow. <gasps> Oh, wow. Yeah, and just, it's just, you know. Not an encore, just a an, Just a, a bow, which I'm just like, oh, God, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, the other thing about that, though, is, is that it is, there's a, there's a thing that goes with trauma uh, and it's very difficult to absorb positive affectation, mm-hmm. you know, so it goes beyond the logic of it. It's just like it just felt a lot. Yeah, well, I can imagine that. Yeah, I remember after seeing the show in Edinburgh, I was like, usually I would stick around (laughs) to say to the stand-up, that was great, or, you know, like, oh, nice to see you, you want to go and have a drink? I was like, I'll bump into her. I'll I'll, I'll bump into her and tell her I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, trip it over the cobblestone somewhere. I I read in an article today, actually, that that was from back when you, I think it was written when you were in New York, and you said that you you felt like you were living somebody else's dream. Yeah. I still feel like that in a way. And it's not because I I don't know why, but I've never been able to dream, you know, like I kept saying that, you know, when this was happening, they're like, all the doors are open for you now. And in my mind, all I could see was just me opening doors and nothing inside like I just don't know what that meant like and I and I know that like you know most people I know you know all my friends in comedy it's like they're always got the 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 sitcom pitch in their head you know the and I just didn't have one ready so I was having all these meetings and I'm like oh it was true that show really was everything I had and it and I chucked it at it so and because it was so exhausting to perform I was, I was, I had nothing. So I was taking these meetings. I'm like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, go to bed. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you must have done it for like a year. That must have been exhausting to do that 18, show. 18 months. 
know. 18 months, fucking hell. That is such a long time it's to do. It's too long. It's too long. Like... It did damage. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And what's interesting to me is most people know that show as as, as being the text that is on, on Netflix, but what it did to me was 18 months every night in front of a live audience. Like, my understanding yeah. of what that show is is different to what the world is going to take away from it. And that's fine, but mm. it is just a, an interesting an interesting thing. Did you have a big break afterwards? Not big enough. Really? No, I... I got a book deal. Oh, yeah, of course. Is it 10 steps? Yeah, that's what it's called, but is it? No. No, you know, you pitch an idea and then you go, that was a dumb idea. I'm not going to do that. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, So I'm just finishing that up at the moment. I've been writing it for a very long time. I got a book deal 10 years before I got the second book deal. It just rolled into the next one. I'm like, I've always had a story before Nanette. Like there's a good there's a good yarn there, but I just this it's really really difficult to find a cohesive line through um, trauma and because I my brain works the way it does I can't make it up like so <laughs> I'm there it's like well that didn't happen that's not how I felt and I know that's the easiest way to get the vibe of what happened and how I felt across but my mind's going it's not true. And that's that's the black and white autistic brain at work there. And so I've got these gaps in my memory that I guess were part of self-preservation. Um, and whereas other parts of my life, it's just like, it's like I'm, you know, it's an archive. The sort of archive your dad puts together and it's just really boring. Why'd you keep this detail? It's not relevant. So I've got to sort through all that shit to get a story out. And the page is just so much more permanent than the stage, you know, like this. And you you just got to be really careful with your story because it's then becomes part of not just how other people see you, but how you see yourself. And then there's a, you know, like, and I'm, I'm actually genuinely frightened of doing, like, of writing the wrong story. And the reason I know that it's possible is that, you know, the way I saw myself and my story changed so radically over a three-year period that it was just like, if I'd have written my story before that, maybe I'd, I'd, you know, put a lid on on things. But, you know, having said that, that's a healing process. If you can put a story around something, it, 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 it can button up and heal. Mm. And it must have been, obviously, like, within the comedy community, everyone was talking about it, but then it became this massive thing that, like, on Twitter it was, like, huge, and people that I know that, like, aren't into comedy at all, like, have you seen this? Like, of course I've fucking seen it. Like, but, like, everyone. And so it became this sort of public discourse, and so I suppose that now you know that can happen with a show that you sort of went, well, I'm going to give up comedy, so I'm going to do this and take it to a few festivals and then maybe do something else. And then it's sort of, you know, all of these articles are written about it and all these famous people are tweeting about watching it. It must have been, did it still feel like it was you or did it feel like you were sort of observing it? I couldn't follow, after a certain amount of time, I couldn't keep following it. Yeah. Someone wisely said to me, especially after the the Netflix special dropped, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, the thing about a fast flowing river, you don't have to be in it to know it. Like you just can know that the river's going really fast. Yeah. because I, I was getting very disorientated by the attention. Um, yeah. 
and you know and I'm not, and I don't it's I can say quite confidently it's got nothing to do with being humble it's quite literally because it was painful because positive mm. it doesn't matter what the attention is attention is difficult for me and were you like that when you were like a kid yeah 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 I haven't changed I just haven't altered this just used to be this little matter of fact grumpy little kid just going that doesn't make any sense okay bye <laughs> So when you, because I know that you grew up in Tasmania, what was that, like, what does that look like for someone that's never been to that part of the world? Um, Sort of, it's similar to where I was on the northwest coast, because I think most people's idea of Australia is, like, beaches and, you know, Mm -hmm. where where the blonde people prepare for Hollywood. (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) So many of yeah, but them. Yeah, I've, but I've done the, the, the road show, so I've, I've seen yeah, all you know parts it. of Australia yeah, so you, now. you get it. So I've played Broken Hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, never was a hill. Um, <laughs> where I'm from in Tasmania sort of has, I think it's it's sort of got a, little, a lot in common with, like, Ireland. Okay. And the Appalachian. <laughs> <laughs> you know like okay there's a little bit of ring-a-ding-ding um but they're happy with it you know what I mean um a lot of potatoes lots of potatoes and you know where I was growing up it was like you had two hobbies to choose from sport or drugs okay and the really talented ones could do both yeah I was about to say did anyone dabble in the two yeah I chose sport <laughs> was it 1997 that homosexuality was decriminalized in Tasmania? Yeah, yeah. Is it as late as that? Yeah, and the, the thing about that being a date is is sort of only ever considered as that um, because it's, and then people just say, oh, it was decriminalized in this place at that time. Most of the times when homosexuality was decriminalised, it was just sort of like this hot moment and it, sometimes it was just going, well, this is clearly something we should change. But what happened in Tasmania was that it was ten year, It was a 10-year debate, a 10-year very toxic and public debate. And, the, yeah, and okay. on an island where uh, it's just really small and everyone knows everyone. So it was a really, really harmful and horrible place to grow up in the closet. Mm. And what what age would you have been in 97? Uh, 19. That's like a really formative time. That is the formative time. Yeah. Um, so I went into that 10 years not knowing what that homosexuality existed. And the first thing I understood about homosexuality was that homosexuals are the spawn of the devil and spread disease because it was, of course coincided with the AIDS crisis yeah and uh so um basically uh, you know the first thing I sort of absorbed were that, that gay men were pedophiles with disease mm-hmm. and uh, you know lesbians were just didn't even get a story mm. that must have been awful I think because there's because there's because there's an amount of shame for me, but you know I didn't grow up. You know it wasn't illegal. I just it was just sort yeah. Of well, that's frowned upon or something that my mum and dad would be like, not homophobic, but sort of 
casually use slurs to describe people and even just in just that sort of made me carry like a backpack of shame yeah until like my mid-30s yeah <laughs> yeah and that's the problem and I, like the debate didn't invent you know these attitudes it just amplified it so I think mm. and it's sort of what you see say in the United States at the moment even in the UK is just like that that wedge issue that shouldn't even really be a a wedge issue but suddenly becomes yeah that um my understanding of myself and my sexuality at no point at no point was nice I, I i don't even remember getting like that like excited feeling like i just never had it and so did you not come out did you was it just not an option it was it was beyond that it was just like it was so I was so deeply closeted, I didn't know I had to come out. Like, it just didn't seem to be an option. Like, mm. so, you know, and it sort of helped that I was, I was not like a magnet for boys. So it's just not like I had to, I was never <laughs> really <laughs> confronted, like, with a decision. It was just, you know, suppression. Yeah, and was it when? Because I know, did you go over to? Do you call it the mainland? Yeah, that's why I want to call it. You do call it the mainland. Yeah. So the the issue, I think, and I don't talk about it in the net because there's already so much that I had to talk about in the net. Was that what the compounding factor though was for me was the autism of it, um, because you know there's this strong idea in the queer community that you know you find your family, and that's yeah. what's that's what's helped us survive and you know mm -hmm. and have have a culture but when you have autism you don't find family that easily you're not wired that way you you're wired to be an outcast which and you're quite happy with that to a certain extent people with autism can't afford to reject their family i've never thought of that yeah you know and it's it's just another layer of vulnerability i can't navigate like i just don't have the ability to navigate the administration of life. So, you know, I, I talk a good game, but I can't fill in a form, you know. So, I, <laughs> so I've, I've, at times in my life, I've been homeless um, because I haven't been able to navigate the bureaucracy of, of, you know, getting a phone, paying rent. How was that then when you were like, all of a sudden this like world touring stand-up? Like, I know it didn't go from you, you know, not having somewhere to live to, to that but like is it because you just think well I do the show and everything and everything else can just be sorted out yeah yeah like I don't I don't know what's happened to me like I think <laughs> what's interesting is that I think you know so many of the people who now know who I am that's all they know of me and it's a it's a weird line to walk because you you know I don't want to become Ellen you know, you don't want to... Get a chat show. Come on, Hannah. No, I'm... Put the effort in. I'm, Get a bloody chat show. I'm more talking about going to the... No, I don't. Going to baseball with George Bush and not knowing why that's an issue. Like, I don't want to become that person. <laughs> yeah, no, Like, okay. just like, yeah, but some of my friends wear fur. And it's just like, what you're saying is all your friends are rich and you don't care. Yeah, um, sure. But, so I'm, I'm hyper aware of that and there's a sense of shame about being comfortable during the pandemic 
Um, because I, I can't just help but think it's like if that had happened a little while ago, I probably would have died. I wouldn't, you know, if I'd have been on my own, I wouldn't have been able to know, you know, been able to navigate the the forms in order to help me pay rent or, you know, these sorts of things. Like I just, I now have management for that, but really what I have is special needs and I'm getting the help I should have always had. Mm. Uh, so I have a really uneasy relationship with people doing things for me because it, on the outside, it looks like, oh, you know, you're a, you're a spoiled performer. And it's just like, I can't do that. I don't know how to talk to people. But that's so good that you, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's so good that you, that you talk about that or like that, you, that those things are now being said aloud because you're absolutely right. Like it's not, firstly, it's not something that's taught in schools. Like oh, this is how you actually exist as an adult. Like here's some life skills. Like, oh no, instead we're going to learn about some shit that happened forever ago that it's all from a man's point of view. The irony of our education system is that it's taught it seems like it's been designed by someone with autism. That is the irony of it. It's like, memorize this fact. Um, which is a deeply, deeply comfortable thing for me to do. I love facts. I love memorizing them. Uh, you know, I love... I Did love you do putting... well at school? No. Um, <laughs> no. You can leave that there. Go on. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Okay. There was a lot going on. Sure. Um, <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, plus, I, I had, you know, trouble at school because of the the. It was the stress of being, you know, the social aspect of it. There's, it's one of the things about um, girls on the spectrum that's that's not really the reason why we're not diagnosed, and that is because, and it's it, it's a really interesting space, and I think it's worth talking about because there's this understanding like, oh, girls don't have autism like boys do. And I don't know whether we, if that's necessarily true, but I, I do know we can't afford to have autism like the boys have. You know, so I think there's a point, you know, it depends where you, you, you're situated on the, on the spectrum. If I could have felt like I could have just sat in a corner and, and thought about whatever I wanted to think about, I may not have struggled as much as I did because what I had to spend all my energy on was not being tormented by my peers mm -hmm. like because because girls have a different social bar like and I'll, it's just I still don't understand I'll be there with you know three people who I I genuinely love right I have no idea what they're talking about with each other or what's going on it's like I'm just like and it's kind of it's like what it you know like when people say that's a click I just think it's one giant click and if I could but it just took me till probably last year to work out that oh every person in that click has a click with each other and then a click and then it's always moving and I'm just like dizzy everything's always fluid with people and that's a great thing that's why we love them but they're very difficult for me to understand in motion I have to go back and have a think about it I'm like oh that's what went on so when you're a kid though like you, your survival depends on how well you can do that and girls on the spectrum do a thing called masking which is you just do what you think is going on you're not feeling it you're not like you're feeling great anxiety and a, and a, and a genuine need to connect but you're not doing it in the same way as people you don't, don't do the automatic thinking and the the sharing of feelings uh, I only have two feelings good and bad and that's it 
and girls are mean. We know this. Like, I'm not saying anything new there. That's how we're sorting ourselves out and we grow out of it. We're not just mean, mean people. We're just sorting it out at school. But when you're different, that's not something I could have navigated or negotiated myself out of. So you, girls on the spectrum mask. So, and that's how I got my, it's how I got my comedy chops. You know, they say you can't teach comedy. I disagree. It's called bullying. And... <laughs> It's the best teacher. It's a masterclass of comedy because it's, you know, like you deflect attention. So what I would do is I'd just listen to conversations and then I'd, you know, store it up. And I I, I freely admit I'm the master of the callback. And that was because of that time because someone will say something. I'm like, oh, that's like the time someone said something else like that. And I'd make these connections. And then people go, oh, you're funny and refreshing. And I'm like, I'm panicking. Is that how you felt, like, listening to all of that? Because obviously I know what it's like to be in, like, a green room of a comedy club. That must have been, like, hellish for you. Hell. Comedy, like, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, and people don't like comedy backstage. No, that's Uh, absolutely true. and, And the reason people don't like it is because people are still performing backstage. But I have real trouble reading that. And so... I've upset a lot of, particularly males, because of the ego involved, bless them. It's not their fault. But they behave like they're really robust. So then I treat them like they're really robust. And then I hurt their feelings. And that's one of the... I have spent my whole life inadvertently hurting people's feelings. And it's what I've spent my life trying to avoid. Because, like, if I want to hurt... You know, I can't... I know how to tear people in your asshole, but I don't like to. Mm-hmm. The only reason I, I, I do it is because either I'm misreading a situation or I really need to get out of it. And I'm creating a very firm me, me circle because I'm distressed. Um, so, you know, sometimes I just like, you know, you know, that, that, that banter they always talk about. I thought I would join in, but sometimes I would just accidentally get the jugular or the nerve. Right. You know, like I just wouldn't always know it. Yeah. And then I'd hear and go, so-and-so is really sad. (laughs) Why? Often with, and it is often male stand-ups, but often with male stand-ups, they appear to be so robust on stage and they're so willing to be to do kind of mean comedy and to and to never be the butt of a joke yeah that backstage you can be like well you can take it you if you give it you have to take it but i i can see the difference between an on-stage persona and off-stage persona what always catches me out is that they are still having a persona Mm. backstage and it's Mm -hmm. full of bravado and i kind of believe it um but and another thing I struggle with is like I can't take a joke. So if I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine about me. You can say whatever you like about me. Like I just don't. Like I just I don't know whether it's like I just got copped a, copped enough. And yeah, I know. And it's not like you know because my mind's wired for patterns. There's absolutely nothing anybody can say to me that I haven't heard before or can't categorize into some other kind of thing that has nothing to do with me. So chiefly what I get is I'm fat and unattractive, 
which when it's particularly when it comes from men is is comical um because it's like i know how to hurt you i'm going to withdraw my desire it's like (laughs) can't take away what i don't want yeah um but you know they they can in a way because essentially we've been taught to believe that you know even men's attention is 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 where you get places and indeed it is that's where i know it comes from so i know it hasn't have it like this is cultural training this has nothing to do with me i don't have to really worry about what i look like that's not something i have to deal with on a day-to-day level i don't have mirrors i brush my teeth but who looks good when they brush their teeth nobody and then I'm just trapped in my own little head. Like that's how I experience the world. I don't experience it as to how other people look at me. And that 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 has meant that I don't always, you know, it's harder when you're young. Like I think I think autism is like a slow bloom situation. Um, it just takes us a long time to get our rhythm and that's when the damage is done because if you don't get if you don't hit hit the points at the right time if you if you don't develop in an order that's when you're traumatized because you you know you're being forced to 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 sort of develop in the right order and you, the disappointment or the the hostility or the you know whereas it's it's a disorder it doesn't mean we won't get the order in the end but quite often like I had difficulty speaking um but I managed to hide that. So, you know, my mum knows that I got words mixed up and all that, but no one else really noticed because I could, you know, I I developed idiosyncratic speech and I'd practice what I had to say. I I, I can't, when I was, particularly when I was younger, because I didn't have the catalogue in my head, when I was younger, I, I, I couldn't go into a conversation not knowing what I could possibly say. In the stress of social situations, the connection between my brain and my my mouth would dissolve. There was no, so I would have to train myself to develop these neurological parts. And it wasn't just like knowing in my head what to say. I had to develop muscle memory around my, like how it would feel. Like, so it was, you know, a, a, a physical practice. So I would have stock phrases and, you know, and so I'd come across as being an endearing little eccentric person um, that had catchphrases and stuff. And But what it is is, like, if I didn't, I couldn't speak. And you didn't get a diagnosis until, like, five years ago? Yeah, and this this is why fucking films like Rain Man are so dumb and why people are like, but it's called acting. It's not called acting. It's called neurotypical people deciding what autism is so people with autism don't even recognise themselves. That's what it's called. Um, so I've got very little time for acting. Screw yourselves. I tried acting like a neurotypical person. Look where that got me. <laughs> <laughs> Often what people think of autism are a sits series of behaviors that are actually just coping mechanisms Mm. you know you know the rocking um the repetitive movements even down to taking solace in patterns and you know the math of you know their their special interest is is a safety from a world that's really really overwhelming you know and depending where you are on the spectrum it can be you know damn right hostile like you know an airport from what I understand, is a war zone. Yeah. 
How did you find living in New York for so long? There's a there's a thing about New York that's that's kind of wonderful in that its chaos is predictable, and people leave you alone. You can live in your own yeah head head bubble, and and also you know it was that thing you know you ask people they'll tell you if they don't want to tell you they won't tell you and I don't find a problem in that <laughs> you know if someone's mean you know go you know I don't want to talk to you I'm like I just treat that as a fact I don't take it personally I'm like there's right. a person who doesn't want to talk to me okay let's try this Fun. person whereas it's like you know there's there's that thing where people give you the impression they want to talk to you and then you take that impression at face value and then you find out later and it's like oh I'm being annoying they're just being polite I don't like that one. Right. So, um, you know, New York is, it, 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 it gets to me eventually because it's, um, it's noisy. Like it's just, it's a physical noise. And I feel sound there's a crossover there. In, and what does that, because I've heard people say that before. Is that like, I mean, I suppose you don't know what it's like to not feel it. So me asking what it's like might not make sense. The best way, there's certain pictures that have physical ramifications in my body. So, you know, I've heard people describe synesthesia as like, you know, colors for things. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's n- that doesn't seem like the nice world I live in. What I feel is like physical ramifications for sound. And most of them are in, in cities are unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the higher pitched tend to sort of have a sharpness in my spine that like I have to sort of brace um and you know sirens can you know i've been i've been floored by sirens going past like you know doubled over like but it also depends on where my energy is like if i'm mm-hmm. if i don't have enough sleep if, I, if life you know if life's not already overwhelming me i can get through but what diagnosis did with for me was to discover you know like i understood that's what bad sounds did but then I was able to weaponize, weaponize good sounds, um, and that helped a lot. But it's so frustrating that autism in girls is so much less diagnosed because presumably once you have a diagnosis, it, it, not having the thing is easier, but you can find ways to deal with it. You can you know, yeah. create the world to suit you a little bit more in a way or make your world feel like that. That is absolutely the absolutely the the real frustrating thing about it because the thing about autistic brains is by and large they're problem solvers. Uh, that's mm. that's why it's like I believe we have a place. Like I don't believe that we need to be charity cases. Like I honestly mm. believe you know like there's a place in this world where people who want to do the same thing every day. I think that's actually a good thing. I think I think. <laughs> You know, there's a kid who used to work at my supermarket when I was growing up and he was the trolley boy and he loved that job and he's, he's on the spectrum and he's still the trolley boy. Mm-hmm. And he's a trolley man now. And it's just like, you know, I rate that. He's like, he's got his own thing going on. Um, but uh, the problem solving brain is, is, is a delight, like, you know, that's what diagnosis has helped me like of course it would be different if I'd had been diagnosed earlier um you know there's a complication with you know people say I don't like labels and it's like god labels are annoying if you have to live there but they're a really handy starting point 
Yeah. Like labels are help. It's like, oh, I am different. You are different. Let's work from there. It's okay. It's like mm-hmm. if if people are like, oh, I don't like labels. It's like, but I know I'm different. You know, I, the the difficult thing I'm finding now is it's like I still have to ex- convince people that I'm on the spectrum. I I even it was like Mark Maron just casually said, you can read like because he'd interviewed apparently someone who was who was uh, really autistic was the words he used. And they said, because you can read social cues. And I'm like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. It's like, like, because the proof is is not, not, uh, you know, enough. <laughs> oh, that's so annoying. That's so, oh. Were you uh, were you tempted to be like I'm sorry my internet's going I just can't hear you we're gonna oh have no to what I said was well if you mean that I can read that you're being an asshole right now yes oh good but that's not because I'm emotionally invested <laughs> because you <laughs> it's because you're putting the proof down but that's I can do that but most most people on the spectrum don't get to do that. Yeah. Because people's under, understanding of it is not what it is. I think you're saying, like, I, I quite like labels. I, like, when I realised I was gay and I was like, great, there are other lesbians. I understand that I'm a lesbian. I like hanging out with other lesbians. This is, this makes sense. Great. Okay, good. I, I, I like that. I like that I know that there are other people that feel like me. Yeah, the problem with labels comes when they become pigeonholes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not just a sequence of badges you wear. <laughs> I've got my badge on right now, you just can't see it. I mean, I'm actually wearing, I'm wearing a Stonewall Inn t-shirt, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really leaning into the cliche. That, I didn't give that what it deserved. In my head, I'm like, yeah, that's really funny. And all my face did just then was like, yep. So <laughs> I'm sorry that. for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. I like the directness. I know. I always know exactly where I am with you, because you're so direct. So, and, <laughs> yeah. and that's actually enormously refreshing for another stand-up. Yeah. Like I remember you coming to one of my shows, and you were like, "I liked that," and I was like, "I just don't think she'd lie." I'm I can't. <laughs> I can't lie, and I can't do enthusiasm. Like I, I, I can, but it just has to be. It's a rare. I can't manufacture extreme enthusiasm. So I can go from neutral to ninety with the same intonation (laughs) you're saying that because i i I know that like i know that to be true from like spending time with you and being like oh i saw that you got a second netflix special and you were like yeah it's good (laughs) (laughs) and it's like if you spent any time with any other comic they'd be like you know i've got another netflix like like it would be the first like it's just it's enormously refreshing. I, I get, you know, and I like, I want to reiterate that it's not about me being humble. It's about, it's about like where my brain, my brain wants to think about what it wants to think about. And it, it likes to think about prob- solving problems. And sometimes I invent those problems. Sometimes they're just like, why is that door ajar? Like who knows what it is. But getting a Netflix special is not a problem. It's great. So just leave it at that. Like. There's nothing else to be said. There's nothing else to think about. It's just good. How does it feel now that you're like, like having had this conversation with you and knowing, you know, knowing all of this stuff about you, about, you know, but how the world's sort of not set up for you in a way. How does it feel now that you're like famous? 
in in a sense the 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 celebrity life is is really helpful because I mean I'm used to walking in a room and people knowing who I am and I'm not knowing them but that's called like forgetting who people are now it's <laughs> so you've been famous forever I just didn't realize <laughs> pretty much <laughs> um but uh, you know it's not so much that it's just the the just simply on t- in terms of being an artist it it means that I can channel my energies into solving creative problems which is what I love to do and what I do well and what I hope I mm-hmm. think I'm you know making a positive contribution with but I've had a lifetime of struggle to draw from. I don't feel like I still feel a little guilt that I don't struggle like I used to. And I know that there are so many people in the world struggling as much, if not more, as I used to. And I don't know what to do about that. Um, But I also, I don't want to struggle. I don't want to. It nearly killed me. So I don't want to, you know. Get back to that. I don't want to. Like, I don't you, want... You I'd don't rather quit to. comedy than hustle at Edinburgh again. Like, honestly. I just also feel like I've, I've done it. Like, I've said my piece. Mm. I feel seen. I just don't feel like it defines who I am. It's what I really mm. enjoy doing. But I enjoy solving problems. Um, so problems are going to be everywhere. I don't have to make them up and then turn them into a story and put them on stage. That's just a that's just a real treat that I get to do at the moment. But rearranging furniture to fit a room, equally satisfying to me. I like that. Like like it's Tetris in your house, like when it gets in all the right places, it disappears and you have to start again. Yeah. The 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 thing about I have a manual brain and so I'm clocking a room I can walk into a room uh that I go into every day and it's still a still a new room. I don't have automatic thinking. You know how you get used to how your house is? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't. So I'm always just like, that just doesn't look right there. That doesn't. So I'm always just like moving things around. Just constantly. Yeah. No, there's one more thing I, that I, I would, there's two more things if I can have five more minutes of your time. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention, and it's something that's come up a lot and something that like conversations that I've had amongst friends as well. And I was wondering how you feel about it in that I feel like when, since you've sort of had Netflix specials and since you've been someone that that lots of people are aware of, it feels like loads of gay women felt like they could see themselves in something that had, in a way that they never had before. That was the story. The story I told, and that's why I had to tell it, the way I did and that's why I had to subvert comedy in order to tell it is because it's not a story our culture cultures understand uh our, the 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 queer woman the the gay woman the the lesbian story is not the same as the male story and we always just took the seat behind that story um and it just in order to overcome trauma, you need to ha- be able to have a narrative, not that just you can tell, but other people understand. And and so I think the coming out story is different. It has different points. It has different dangers for different reasons. And I just, when I when I wrote Nanette, I just thought I just don't under I just don't think people understand. I just think they think this is sorted. 
and it has everything to do with gendered violence um, that we don't get to just escape after society goes, okay, gay people are okay. We're still women. You know, and the same the same is true for you know uh, uh, the the trans journey and and more effeminate men. It 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 goes beyond sexuality and it sits in this difficult area of of gendered violence that really has nothing to do with sexuality. Um, but the coming out story, you know, of my generation and it's just never been told in those terms and. I just think it's so incredible that but Nanette has done that. Yeah. And, 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 and Douglas existing and, and, you know, in it being like, I, I just think it's remarkable. Like, I feel like if I had seen you and that and, uh, and, and been able to watch you on stage as a teenager, I would have been so much happier. And now that exists for others. Yeah, I feel good about being able to being responsible for that, you know, place where people can sort of live, exist in and see themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I like there's all sorts of, as you know, contortions you have to do in order to see yourselves in, in our stories, you know, mm-hmm. cultural stories. And I just think with Nanette, it's something that people like us had to contort themselves less, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's why a lot of men got so angry with it because they just didn't fit that story. They didn't know where they fit it in. They didn't understand it wasn't about them, but still they tried to make it about them. Good on them. <laughs> okay, I've got one more question and then Keep I'll leave t- you to your to your day and I'll go to bed because that's how time works. Um, I ask everyone this who comes on the show and um, you can either think of like a, a younger version of yourself or maybe someone that's listening. If you had to give like, I don't know, a nugget of advice. I'm not sure how you feel about giving advice, but if you had to, to either like a younger version of yourself or to to someone that's listening, we, can, we have loads of listeners that are really young. Some of them are not out yet or some of them are maybe in quite hostile homes or are, are finding it quite tough, especially in lockdown. If you could give them a bit of advice, what would you say? Uh, I'd say, like, I don't know about practical advice. I'm not. I'm not a practical person, but I would say that the pain you're feeling is worse because it's a one-sided conversation. If you're not being seen, then that's not your fault. Um, But it's unfair and that's just got to take solace in that as you keep fighting. Perfect. Hannah, I think you're so fucking brilliant. I really do. I'm, I love what you do and I've loved your shows for years and years. And so um, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Susie Ruffle. I'm at 90. <laughs> there it is. The brilliant Hannah Gadsby. Thank you so, so much. Uh, for listening to the show those of you that are new listeners um because of, because of hannah being on the show uh, go back and have a listen to some of the other episodes um i hope that you'll enjoy some of those too and t- to the regular listeners who are here every week I-, I love you guys too don't worry okay um i'm gonna say goodbye now i'll see you next week with another episode and uh you take care bye <laughs>